0: The best speechwriters in the world take the experiences of the people who have to speak and then write a language for them that captures that authentic experience.
1: Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Tudor Mihailescu, a progressive political tech entrepreneur. You need to know Tudor's story to understand how he came to his company idea. He's founder and CEO at Speechify, which provides software to enable organic online sharing. That is, they help organizations compose messages suitable for social media platforms so that they can employ their communities to post them widely, hopefully furthering their missions. His tools are used by Demcast, for example, an organization that will be on the show in a few more episodes. Tudor is from Romania. He had a previous political startup in Europe, has a PhD, where he studied how American presidents write their speeches. If you're interested in how our political tech ecosystem is developing, and in this particular product, you should listen. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with tutor Mihai Leskou. Tudor, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography?
0: Sure, uh, absolutely. And thanks so much for inviting me on the podcast. I'm, uh, I'm really excited uh, for the conversation. So I was uh, born in Romania uh, just six months before the revolution that toppled the communist regime. I grew up in Romania during a period of massive transformation. One experience I had when I was little influenced my entire career since. I'm a lefty, but I was forced to write with my right hand, which was a pretty traumatic experience to go through. The reason for it is because for a very long time, I was unable to write by hand very well and fast. So I basically went through school being unable to express myself in the one way that students usually express themselves, which is in writing. I went through school thinking I was stupid. I always had low grades. Professors would always say, hey, you cannot keep up and things like that. And that experience shaped me. What gives me enrichment uh, and the sense of purpose is giving other people a voice. So everything, this is me looking back on that entire experience. During that part, I was just trying to cope with it. (laughs) So I finished high school, I went to university and I studied uh, political science. I then moved on to Geneva uh, where I did uh, my master's studies. During the time that I was studying political science, I also took part in political campaigns. That was my very first attempt to act on this mission of giving people a voice, channeling citizens' concerns to their elected representatives. Then I moved to Geneva and I did two things that basically shaped everything I would do since. I co-founded my first startup. It was called GovFaces with two other Americans and uh, two other Europeans. The purpose of GovFaces was to channel questions from politicians to elected representatives and have them vote on them. And that startup took me... To the southeast of England, so I worked with city councils in the southeast of England for a while. To the European Parliament, I worked with members of European Parliament, to the United Nations. We worked at the United Nations as well, and in other European uh, countries too. Um, at the same time, I, st- I did something else. I started a PhD in how American presidents write their speeches. The reason for that was the same. I wanted to see how the most powerful voice in the world is being created. As someone who had felt his voice was taken away from, I just wanted to, to do that. So that's that was my, my first foray into, into entrepreneurship and into the, the the political space.
1: Did you read that book, The Rhetorical Presidency? Yes. Jeffrey Toulis?
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: Yes. Because that, for me, was a formative study about the changes in communication from the presidency over time i had the author on the podcast a while ago which i enjoyed quite a bit that's cool yeah presidents haven't always communicated the same way especially the one before biden
0: Um, (laughs) (laughs) whose name should not be be spoken
1: (laughs) what did you learn about how presidents wrote their speeches and how that changed over time?
0: The first thing I learned is that presidents didn't write their
1: speeches. (laughs) Well, some participated in it quite a bit on certain speeches.
0: Indeed. But that's the thing. So when the president speaks, they speak on behalf of the entire government, the entire country, and they speak to many audiences nationally and internationally. So... For some speeches, like the State of the Union, it actually takes six months to write, and it can involve 40 to 50 different departments and more than 200 people.
1: That's the same number I use to compose these questions for the podcast.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, well, if you speak to multiple audiences, you have to.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's quite a, those are quite elaborate endeavors, I guess.
0: Indeed. And so one of the things I've realized is that the, the, the process of writing speeches got institutionalized and professionalized in stages. So speechwriting is like policymaking. If you engineer it in a certain way, you get different results. And that was actually the, the, the purpose of my PhD thesis.
1: That was your kind of the conclusion that you came to?
0: Exactly. Yeah, so if you organize the speech writing practice inside the, the the white house and the government in a certain way you get different rhetorical results and outcomes than if you do it in a in a different way.
1: So let me ask you also about gov faces. Was that at all taken from Facebook? Why was it called gov
0: faces? Ha, huh, that's interesting. I didn't come up with the name. The idea behind it was that if if you get if politicians ask answer questions they're not faceless anymore you can actually put a face to them they become much more much easy to identify with that was the idea behind it so basically putting faces on politicians by allowing them to answer questions from citizens
1: is that an ongoing thing still
0: uh, no um, so uh, that one uh, we closed it down in 2018 that was my MBA of how to m- Run and not run a tech company. <laughs> we we learned a lot from that. Uh, tell me a things- little.
1: Tell me a little about what you
0: learned and why. <laughs> uh, I I would be curious to how, to how how many of these you'd actually relate. Um,
1: I'm sure a lot.
0: <laughs> um, in the early days of NGP, <laughs> a few of the things I've learned is that. So there's two ways of building technology. One, one, uh, one paradigm is called the bazaar. The other one is called the cathedral. Uh, the bazaar approach is you, you launch an MVP after just a day of development, and then you iterate on that with feedback from users. And then you build step by step, right? Uh, it's also the lean methodology. The The cathedral one is what people associate with the Apple launching the first iPhone. Even that one is not fully accurate, which is... You take feedback and then you build something grandiose. No one sees it. And when you launch it, you just hit it right. Well, we actually went to, with the second approach for, uh, for GovFaces where we got some feedback from users by just showing them mockups. And then we spent seven months to, ro- to, to launch a prototype, quite a lot of money. And then when we launched it, we realized that people were only using two features out of an entire product.
1: It's the agile versus the waterfall method.
0: I'm not familiar with that analogy.
1: An agile development, you would would have that kind of iterative, get feedback as you, you build it in sprints, and you get feedback after each sprint. Waterfall, you design the whole thing, build the whole thing, and then put it out there, yes. Either one can work, theoretically. And even if only two features work of a product... They might be the ones that matter. What actually occurred when you put this out there? Because it sounds like you got users in in places all over the world.
0: Another thing we've noticed is that monetizing political technology is, is quite difficult. We went on the premise that we would just launch it. there would be a lot of users and then we just grow it the way WhatsApp grew. And then at some point, uh, like investors, would just uh, we just invest in that. Well, it's not really what happened. That,
1: that is kind of the naive view of developing a product and a company. Yes, <laughs>
0: <laughs> as I was saying, I've learned a lot from that. <laughs> That's also how, uh, how how we approached it. And then we we uh, we pivoted a number of times, and uh, because at some point we ran out of money, uh, then. Uh, then we also decided to um, to to let it go
1: but what would you say were the most positive things you learned out of it that stuck with you and that you continue to use today
0: ah uh, that's that that's an interesting question oh a lot I mean I knew nothing about tech at that point I learned how to how to grow product features I learned how to uh Think of sprints. How to get feedback from users? How to speak to users? Um, investment. Uh, I, I I learned what a shareholders agreement is. How investment works, and all of these things. Like it was like an MBA in how to 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 start a tech company. Like both with the with the failures and the successes.
1: Yeah, invaluable. I would imagine.
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It, it was super exciting.
1: <laughs> so after that. It's the PhD, right? What was next after you wrote your dissertation and uh, studied presidential speech writing? What What did you do after that?
0: I came back to Geneva, so I was living in in Washington D.C. at that point because that was where my last year of the PhD studies uh, to, took place. So I came to Geneva. So I knew I wanted to get back into into tech. So obviously, another lesson I learned from this is that, like from the startup experience, is you cannot be a part time co founder. So right. I was doing a Faces as a PhD student and as a founder at the same time. Like one of the things I realized, I just want to dive fully into this and only do this. So I came back to, to Switzerland. Uh I had I, I started writing for Forbes. I had a column on civic technology.
1: How did you land a column on Forbes?
0: Oh, so I was fortunate enough to be selected as a a, a part of the Forbes 30 under 30 cohort in Europe in 2017 because of that, I was encouraged to apply to become a contributor. Uh, and I had I had my own niche, uh, which was civic technology. And I also, the, the mission went back to 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 everything else. I knew that tech founders in the civic tech community are underrepresented in Forbes, TechCrunch, and so on, because usually they don't raise that much money. Uh, these are social problems, and I just wanted to give them a voice. That's how this uh, started. And uh, so... Finished the PhD, I took a consultancy job at the United Nations um, and then uh, started writing Forbes article. I defended my thesis and then uh, I prepared my, my full plunge into entrepreneurship then.
1: A lot of people after a PhD, they go on to teach at a university or whatever. You were certain that this was the path for you or what, what was the calculus?
0: This is probably one of the most painful things with, with being an entrepreneur. Uh, it's the path that no one understands. So if you're not surrounded by entrepreneurs, what you do doesn't make any sense to anyone. So um, I-, I finished a PhD, right? And then the first startup had failed. So my friends and family were like, it doesn't work. You're not cut out for this. Uh, <laughs> then I was in Geneva. I had a nice apartment. The United Nations job paid quite well. My parents came to Geneva, they saw my friends, and I was telling them, so I'll quit this at the end of the year, and then I'll dive fully into entrepreneurship. My professors were like, hey, you have a talent for academic work. You could have a potential here too. So actually separating myself out from that and just taking on a path that was very uncertain. Also, I had almost no money at that stage because like... PhD student with a startup that didn't succeed. It's not really the, the, the path that allows you to save a lot of money. So it was a very uncertain journey. Uh, and it was tough to take because of that. I knew that this is something that I would find very enriching, but it was still very tough to take. And I, I can imagine for every one person who takes that path, there's at least a thousand who don't.
1: Well, all I can tell you is I didn't write my dissertation and started a company instead, and I had a lot of sleepless nights at the beginning. (laughs) So I have some way of relating to that state of mind that you must have had.
0: (laughs) Can you imagine. I can imagine.
1: Did you have a clarity about what? I mean, one can have a hankering to be a civic entrepreneur without a clear idea. Did you have a clear idea about what you wanted to do?
0: This is another thing I learned from GovFaces is that you can know that you want to do something in a certain field. So I'll also tell you how Speechify came about, Uh, but you shouldn't lead with the vision. You should listen to users because the the purpose is to build something that users love, use, and are willing to pay for So this time I took it the other way. So I knew... I had some insight. I knew that I had experience in digital engagement, and I knew that I had done a PhD on how language gets constructed. So I realized, hey, I could can do something with technology to give people a voice, and AI could map out well into that. So that's how it started. That That's really how it started. Uh...
1: It was like, I can find some intersection between AI technology and civic tech. Is that right? Yeah, and
0: I've done a PhD on speech writing. So I have knowledge, I have social science knowledge on how language is created and comes together, what patterns are being used. And I knew that the AI uh, space had evolved a lot. So I was wondering, maybe there's an intersection from the computer science side and there's something there that we could do. But I still didn't know what that would be.
1: So, what's the founding story for Speechify?
0: Cool. Uh, So, there's another leeway here because there were a few more failures along the line until we got here. Uh, So, on at the end of December 2018, I left Geneva, and then I was working with a fellow entrepreneur from the US, from Kansas City, from Missouri, on a polling idea. So, basically, allowing people to do polls in their own community and then vote on things that would happen afterwards. Again, on the same variation of giving people a voice. Well, I went to see my parents. I visited them in Romania. And then by the time I was supposed to leave and go to the US and actually meet and start working with this guy, we realized that it didn't work out. then I stayed a bit longer at my parents' place in Romania. And then they were looking at me. They were like, you have no money. You have no idea. You have no MBA or anything like that. You strive that this guy didn't work, you quit Geneva. you quit an academic career, you quit the United Nations. <laughs> what are you going to do with your life? Like that was really the conversation. And then uh, at that time, I actually started uh, researching a little bit more into the AI side. And there were a couple of things that came to play at the same time. Because I stayed a bit longer in Romania, my time there coincided with an event that was quite unlikely. So Brad Parscale, who was Trump 2020 campaign manager, came to Romania to do a paid engagement. And I was like, why? I think it was a few weeks before the results of the Mirror Report came live. And I was like, why? <laughs> um, so I went to the event and I started listening about how he was speaking about political technology and stuff. And then I wrote a piece on Forbes about the takeaways from that conference. Then I published it. What did you say? There were a couple of things that fascinated me. One of the things that fascinated me was the concept of, I don't think they ever acted on that vision, but the concept was very appealing to me, which was the idea of creating a ground game operation, but online as a way to fit into the work that was being done offline. And the fact that obviously they had a, a, a billion dollar war chest um, that they wanted to spend it all, they were launching the Trump app and all of those things. Um, so I, I reported on all of that and It actually, it just happened to be the first time Brad Parscale, ever spoke publicly on those issues. I have no idea why he did it in Romania. All of these numbers on the budget and how this was going to happen and all of it, it just came up for the first time. So I published it on Forbes. The visibility raised a lot and it got like 50,000 retweets. Amazing. I realized that most of them came from the progressive side which leads to the founding story of Speechify. I looked at all of those tweets to to see what the source was, who amplified this post so much. And that happened to be uh, a person named Nick Knudsen, who is the co-founder of Demcast. Demcast is uh, the first hub of progressive activists fully online. They had just launched, they're visionaries, and they become our early adopters. So he had shared the article um, to a group that was then called the Resistance. Obviously, the resistance against Trump. It was this online movement of online activists, as some of them even had closed identities at that point because they were living in red states, to actually share content and build an online resistance movement against Trump and so on, and. So I contacted him because he had shared the article basically saying, hey, this is what happens on the Trump side. We need to build an online movement that can actually be the countervailing force to that. And then I wrote him and then we had a call and I asked him, how did you manage to amplify it that, that much? And he was like, well, we have a, a network of 2000 online activists that do online campaigning the way you do it face to face. We write suggested content for them and they go into an Excel sheet, they take that content, they customize it into their own ways and then they share it with their friends. It's kind kind of how leafleting happens when you do it door to door. You bring people in a room, you give them leaflets, you tell them what they could say and then they go out and they tell their friends about it. And that was the initial idea here. When people use Excel sheets for stuff, then that means this is a technology that needs to be built. I'd also known that there was one tool that had existed in this space. It was called Thunderclap that was basically allowing organizations to use their voice of their community members to share one message at one time. That one actually failed because they had, uh, people would automatically post on, on Facebook, on Twitter, and so on. After Cambridge Analytica, when Facebook stopped the automatic content posting, Thunderclap also collapsed. Uh, And I knew there was a need for this because Thunderclap had been used by everyone, anyone from the United Nations to even the the, the Hillary and the Obama campaigns. It was quite widespread. So I had a chat with the founder uh, and to ask how that happened because my wheels were already starting to turn. At the same time, something else happened, a Google search. I literally Googled AI for speech writing because I had done a PhD in speech writing. So I was like, is there anything on the AI side that can help with this? And I found one name. There was this one guy, his name was Valentin Kasarnik, who, when he was studying at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, had created an algorithm that was writing speeches based on previous congressional debates. I wrote him um, and then we started speaking and then we ended up just having bi-weekly calls like about how this technology could improve. And he was the first one who said, hey, speeches is difficult to write. I know I wrote an l- algorithm about it, but a long text is very difficult to write. But a social media post would be much easier. And that those were the first elements in the speechify journey, because we realized that the reason why people are not active on social is because most of cases, even though they have experience, they don't know how to capture that in a social media post. It's kind of the same with, with big figures. Nelson Mandela didn't write his own books, his own memoirs. What? He was helped to write those. Oh. Um, by ghostwriters. Because in most cases, people have experience, but they don't know how to capture it, and they need someone to do that for them. It's the same thing with social media posts. And those were the elements that started shaping up what Speechify was starting to become. There was a third one, that's called Antler. There is a global startup incubator that doesn't invest in companies, they invest in founders. So basically, if you're a founder, you have the potential to create something extraordinary, but you have no money, you have no co-founder, and you also maybe don't have the business coaching, you join a cohort with another 70, 100 people, and then they provide you with all of those. They connect you with a potential co-founder, they give you the initial money, and they also give you the business and tech coaching to, to start the company. And those are the three elements that shaped Speechify into in what has gone to be today.
1: What is Speechify today? What is it?
0: In one sentence, we help organizations facilitate organic social sharing.
1: With technology.
0: Exactly. And for an analogy here, so right now, if you're a company or an organization and you want to drive results, you have two options. One of them online. One of them is ads. The other one is influencer marketing. That's it. Uh, there's a third one, which we know is very successful, which is word of mouth. People just speak to their friends about something that they like. We know it's the most efficient form of marketing, but online, it's, it's, it's a magical thing. You either have it magically or you don't. Well, Speechify wants to, to turn that into an established marketing category that people can invest in, measure results and drive conversions, clicks, Impressions and so on in a very uh, measurable and uh, systematic way. My first
1: reaction to this without much contemplation is, oh, no, this is like uh, automation of something that's going to get out of hand. It's like more bots. It's going to be misused. You're a civic tech leader trying to make the world better, how is this going to make the world better?
0: That's a great question. I think we should look at analogies uh, here. So the best way to think of Speechify is as, let's think of it this way, a very small percentage of the social media population right now actually is actually speaking online. Like it's, uh, the estimates vary between one and 5%. That means 95% of the social media population is silenced. If we think of the internet as a place where people can do online the same things they can do offline, this means that 95% of people are actually right now crippled. The main reason why they're crippled is because they do not know how to express themselves in the online environment. They have their ideas. They have their experiences. They just don't know how to express that in a very specific language, which is social media posts that come with a lot of norms.
1: I have no idea.
0: That's exactly the thing. The way you write on LinkedIn is different than the way you post on Instagram or on TikTok or on Snapchat and so So this
1: kind of takes your idea and and recasts it into the appropriate language with the right information?
0: Yeah, and the the analogy here is speechwriters. So the surprising value of a speechwriter is authenticity. The best speechwriters in the world take the experiences of the people who have to speak and then write a language for them that captures that authentic experience. So that's Speechify's goal. We want to make sure that people can express themselves easily and in a compelling way about the things that they care about. Because otherwise they would be stifled, they wouldn't speak. So this is really the alternative. That's the, the vision, that's the goal.
1: It's become like essentially a stock question for me now to ask people who are developing tech in this general space, to ask them, who would you not provide this to? What are the bounds of the customer base that you would find acceptable and not acceptable? Clearly, for most people, there are violent fringe organizers that you wouldn't want or groups that you abhor their the way they participate in society? How do you, do you draw boundaries on who can purchase this technology from you and, and how?
0: So at the moment, this is, so this is a, for us, we're a, very, a small startup. So this is actually an evolving conversation. And uh, the, the more we grow, uh, the more that culture gets developed. We started in the progressive community for a few reasons. So I can tell you what we want. We want Speechify to convey factual information. We want Speechify to be a a way to empower organizations, to raise awareness of issues. And we want Speechify to contribute to developing a more healthy online conversation. How best to do that, we still don't know. So our answer up until this point was actually to work with a small group of early adopters that can shape the initial culture of what Speechify can become. As we grow uh, to develop more and more that, that, that culture, we're still at quite the beginning stages of this journey.
1: Who's working with you now? What kind of initial set of customers do you have?
0: Uh, so we started in uh, 2019. The company was uh, was in, uh, incorporated in September th- 2019 on the 16th, so <laughs> uh, uh, our birthday. Up to this point, we've uh, had on our share pages more than half a million users that uh, drove social media traffic of, uh, worth around $40 million, including around 8 billion Twitter impressions for various organizations. So we worked with the Biden and Harris campaign during the 2020 elections in some of the battleground states. Various campaigns, for instance, Doug Jones' campaign used speechify as well. Um, Various uh, non-profits uh, like uh, One Fair Wage, Planned Parenthood, Common Cause, and uh, various grassroots activism groups. Uh, Demcast, which is the first early adopter we had, but we also work outside of that. We've worked with uh, startups who are also uh, using their co- uh, customers to, uh, to refer products. Antler, our main advisor, also uses uh, Speechify uh, and, uh, and so on.
1: To follow up on one or two of those, how does the Biden-Harris campaign come to find you? And to what extent did they use you?
0: So it came from the digital organizing side. And the, the the analogy here, how Speechify started was was this way. So organizations have have already tried to find a solution to this problem. They have community members who would want to raise awareness of certain causes, but they don't know how to do that online. So they've started a practice that is that are called social toolkits. So they usually put a Google Doc together or an Excel sheet with, as I was saying, texts images, links, hashtags, and then they helped their community members build their own posts. That's where we went. We actually went to the people, most of them digital organizers, who were already doing social toolkits. The work just started spreading from our first early adopters, then people on the um, uh Biden and Harris campaign started, learned about it at, in the battleground states, and then the ball started rolling and we ended up working with four of the coordinated campaigns in the battleground states.
1: Did they pay you for it? Yes. Yeah. And so what does an arrangement look like?
0: We're a tech platform, so they're off-the-shelf subscriptions uh, that uh, that organizations can pay for. Uh, they range between 99 and uh, $555 a month. We also have a free account, And then they they log in on the platform, they can create these toolkits, and then uh, they can distribute those to their community members. That's how it works.
1: So give me a sense of an ideal customer for you and how they would go about implementing it and what it would do for them.
0: Ah, that's a great question. Uh, So the second analogy to how Speechify is being used, aside from these toolkits, is share buttons. So right now, when you go and you submit a form on every action, uh, for instance, or any other petition on fundraising software, ActBlue, uh, Action Network, you call it. After you submit that form, you get taken to a blank page, like a confirmation page, where they ask you to share with a friend. That's where you see what we call static share buttons. So it says share on Facebook, share on Twitter. When you click on it, nothing happens. A blank page opens up, and people need to write from scratch. What we've noticed is that most people who land on that page, and we have some stats over this uh, uh, from various companies, only two out of every hundred people who have already submitted the form so they're engaged actually end up sharing about that petition or fundraising campaign with their friends. That's a massive waste. So with the Speechify sharing functionalities that can be embedded in the autoresponder emails and in those, in those confirmation pages, that percentage goes to twenty.
1: What do people see that's different, that's driving that huge difference?
0: So there's a couple of elements here. They see a full post. They see they can choose between two or three posts. They see the texts. They see the hashtags. They see great quality assets. They can even customize them there. We have filling the blanks that allow them to, to fill those in. And then everything is then carried over to their social network of their choice. They can customize it forward and then they share it. These texts and assets are actually being optimized so the campaign managers can optimize these with the help of our writing assistant that learns from what's being shared and clicked on to suggest ways to further improve these texts and the hashtags and so on.
1: Sounds like something that becomes more useful for a large organization with a lot of communication. Is that right?
0: And this is what I, where I wanted to go. So... One of our advisors, uh, uh, Keegan Goodies, who was on Bernie's 2016 campaign, uh, speaks about Speechify in this way. He, He says he would like to see Speechify as becoming the paper company for social sharing in the progressive space. The analogy is pretty interesting because, so on the one hand, obviously we want to work with big organizations that have millions of people on their email lists. But what we would love to do is actually provide social sharing technology and infrastructure to the big software players. So to help them replace these static share buttons on all of their pages with uh, Speechify's intelligent sharing functionalities and provide the also the, the, the data and the AI engine that can help people write that content.
1: I'm aware of some of these CRM type companies that are out there that are in the progressive space. To what extent have you found partnerships with them or where are you in Negotiating or talking them into such,
0: we're in contact with all of them. The, the The reason for this is because Speechify lives by being integrated in websites and emails. So the CRMs distribute Speechify. So we need to we need to make sure that it can be easily integrated. So we have conversations uh, with them already and trying to find the best way for Speechify to add value. As far as the
1: Development of the company. What do you have for staff? How where are you for funding? What's the kind of stage of the enterprise?
0: Speechify is a US company. We're registered in New York, Delaware C Corp. obviously, for the, the entrepreneurs who are listening into this. We're at pre seed. We've raised eight hundred thousand dollars up until this point uh, in, a, in a pre-seed round from multiple investors. The most recent one is Higher Ground Labs. Speechify is actually part of the Higher Ground Labs Accelerator or part of the fifth cohort. We're a team of eight remote. Half of our team is based in Europe. Half of our team is based uh, in the U.S. All of our client-facing team members are in the U.S. We've built the platform. So we have uh, the uh, AI engine. Uh, We've built the uh, platform that allows companies to generate the shareable functionalities and the social toolkits. We've been live uh, to that point. We launched the first version of Switchify after just two days of development. It was a basic share page, and we built everything on it with users for the last two years and a half.
1: It seems to me fairly unique to your perspective on the world, and, but is there competition, direct competition?
0: So it depends on how you look at it. I, I see three verticals. The vertical that is the closest is the social sharing space there's two big companies in this space one of them is called add this the other one is called share this add this was bought by oracle in 2017 for 400 million dollars share this uh, has raised 80 million dollars in investment these two companies provide the the share buttons on the entire web but they don't work all of the software companies that have share buttons on their pages They get them from these two companies, but these share buttons have stayed the same for the last five to seven years. There's very little movement in this space. We actually see them as our direct direct competitors from that perspective.
1: Is anyone using either of them in the progressive political space?
0: I think it's inevitable not to use them because they're everywhere. Uh, They're easy to integrate. They don't do much, but they're easy to integrate.
1: What distinguishes what you're offering from theirs? especially
0: so there's there's multiple elements uh one of them is um the most important one is the it's engagement so sharing share buttons are not being used by anyone and the reason for that is because users have writer's block and they need to write from scratch the one company that has been used a lot in the progressive space and that it's really just a very basic infrastructure is called click to tweet so click-to-tweet is an initial idea of what Speechify has been developing, where there's, people can just share a text on Twitter. That's really the precursor of this thing. And the hypothesis is that if you give people a text, then they will be able to actually take that and to, 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 to share it. Well, how Speechify works is we provide uh, shareable functionalities on all platforms anything from LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, direct messaging platforms. The users, the campaign managers can provide the text, optimize it through our AI, but also their sharers can further optimize it with help from our uh, writing assistant as well. And then we track all stages of it. So the analytics component is very important here. If you look at the static share button provided by Add This, for instance, you know only when a person has clicked on, on share, you don't know whether they actually shared it, you don't know what content they shared, you don't know what their friends clicked on and whether that click converted on your website. Speechify is coming at it and we wanna stack social sharing as a, an alternative to ads and we've seen a couple of really interesting things. We could track that out of every hundred clicks that are being driven through organic social sharing, if you stack those against a hundred clicks driven by ads, the conversion rates uh, go up to ten times higher. And Speechify is the only platform at the moment that is able to actually provide that kind of data, and as I said, provide a, a, an infrastructure to do organic social sharing at scale.
1: Is the work that you've done that is different there protectable? Is the IP something that you can hold to yourself through trade secret or? Yes, patent or whatever.
0: So, I mean, one of the things is I actually believe that the bi- the best, mode for companies is their capability to be uh, to to be continually innovative, and I'll give you a few examples. Um, so, we have our own proprietary algorithms that we're working on, and Valentin, my co-founder, is spearheading that work that help optimize social media posts based on the data we collect. So we look at structures of posts, depending on what you want to do. Is it fundraising? Is it donations? Is it awareness raising campaigns? Is it on COVID? Is it on Build Back Better? And we look at the images and text that are being shared and we look at what engagement those generate. And then that goes back into our optimizing algorithm that helps campaign managers make better decisions on those. This Data collection mechanism and the core of what we build is actually the proprietary algorithms are actually uh, the modes that we're building for the company.
1: What do you think you haven't had a chance to explain about what you're building and why?
0: I think what I would like people to understand is that let's make this comparison. The most successful organizations are those that rely on people speaking to their friends about things. The most successful campaigns happen like that. That's why uh, relational organizing is so important. What we're doing is, is showing that relational organizing and word of mouth can actually happen online too, but you need to help people in a few ways. And the biggest way is giving them guidance on how to speak, how to express themselves, and so on. That's one of the the, uh, the most important points. Another one that I think you, you touched on at the beginning is authenticity. I think that the advances in technology, if they're used right, can can help people uh, express themselves better, can help people make a greater impact. We want to offer organizations a, a way really to to... Uh, to move away from ads and then create more authentic engagement with their communities in a way that is actually more reliable.
1: Is there a conflict between the success of tools like this and the ability of people to deal with just the information flow and the volume of it? Like people started texting for campaign work, and it was one thing if you got one text. But it's another if you suddenly got 25 from organizations on the same day and it just became overwhelming and you wanted to unsubscribe from everything. Is there a challenge here about how to modulate this flow and how to use it most correctly because of things like that?
0: If we use the analogy of the online world as the same as the physical world, in the physical world, we have a lot of different spaces. There's some public spaces like Twitter. There's some closed network spaces, friendship spaces like Facebook. There's some closed groups like Telegram channels and Facebook groups and stuff like that. There's also ways to communicate directly with one person. I think it's a matter of of empowering people to express themselves in all of these different spaces there's ways to reduce the noise by only following and paying attention to people that you value their presence of. So I think I'll I'll look at it this way. Um, We we just need to become much more uh, educated about how to use the online world and make the most of it.
1: Well, it sounds like you are someone who can do some of that educating. Is there a question that I failed to ask you that I should have?
0: Any early stage company needs a lot of help. There's a lot of people on the podcast that came on the podcast, listened to the podcast, that uh, maybe even even by uh, by by looking by by hearing me speak, they have spotted a lot of things that we could do better. So I think one of the questions is how would you like listeners to to chip in and contribute to building something better? That's that's what I would.
1: Well, it, it does sound to me like what you're saying is you're open to feedback from people who hear you. And that makes sense. If people want to reach you uh, with some feedback, what would they do?
0: There's two ways. So our website is speechifai. AI. So an AI at the end instead of a Y dot tech. Uh, and my my email address is tutor at uh, Speechy AI.tech. Uh, so you can just reach out uh, to me directly. Uh, everything we've built was with feedback from users. Uh, we, we didn't set out with a clear idea of what we were going to build. If you feel that you would need a service like this uh, as an organizer, uh, or uh, you have ideas to make it better, please reach out. Because uh, that's, a, that's our mission, to, to help people, empower them to, uh, and give them a voice. But we need feedback for that.
1: Well, part of my mission in doing these kind of interviews is to understand the entrepreneurs that are working to make the democracy better. So it's an honor for me to get a chance to talk to you about what you're up to. Is is there anything else you want to say?
0: Thank you so much. I'm super excited to speak to you. Uh, I I know there's been a lot of amazing people coming on this podcast, and I'm humbled and really excited to to contribute uh, in a small way to this.
1: I would also send people who uh, want to know more about you to Google your TEDx talk, which I found quite
0: interesting as well. <laughs> Thanks so much. I really appreciate it.
1: That was Tutor Mihailescu, tutors at Speechify, where you replace the Y at the end with AI in a nod to the artificial intelligence they use.